It's week three of ABC's The Crossing podcast. Here we talk about all things Crossing related, going in-depth on the episode you just saw, and exploring the science behind the fiction back again. It's the creators of The Crossing, writers Dan Dworkin and Jay Beattie. Hello. Hello. And back again this week, it's Andrew Hessel, CEO of Human Genomics, Inc., giving us more of that sweet, sweet science. Hey, Andrew. Hey. Uh, So we'll get to him in a moment. But first, I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson. And guys, this week's episode ends with a doozy of a cliffhanger. Supermom Reese steals Oliver. What the hell's going on? You'll just have to watch, I guess, to, to figure out. I mean, obviously, she uh, she is uh, upset with how Jude has uh, wronged her, and um, she needs leverage, and she is going to, uh, uh, she's taking his son to, to use him as such. I really liked how you guys built from the, the second episode where it looked like they were going to be allies, both, you know, doing things for their kids. They're both parents, who, and that's their motivation. And then they turn against each other, and now she's kind of unhinged going crazy in the forest and, you know, killing all sorts of people, right? Yeah, I mean, that's always how we wanted it to go. We knew it would get pretty boring uh, uh, pretty fast if they were just uh, allied from the end of the pilot going forward. That's, uh, you know, where's the conflict in that? So we knew we had to, to get them, get her radicalized and get her, uh, get her, you know, realize her, her total threat potential. Yeah, it's a really unfortunate situation for Jude, who was trying to do the right thing, um, as he saw it, and put his trust in Emma Wren and the Homeland Security, um, but was, of course, unaware of an element in Homeland Security in Lindauer um, that led to this, what Reese describes as a, a betrayal, or, you know, interpreted as a betrayal of her when he was really just trying to, you know, get all the parties together. It's all, it's all, it, it, it's all, it all comes down to bad communication. That's why people should just be transparent with one another. <laughs> it's, it's an episode about honesty. And you can, you can just, you can never trust the feds when it comes down to it. Right? Not on TV, yeah. certainly. <laughs> well, um, and then also in this episode, uh, we get a lot more of Hannah and her, she's kind of been on the periphery a little bit, uh, Obviously, you guys have made a point that she is somebody that we're going to be paying attention to. But in this one, we get a lot more with her and this guy in the locket who she sees uh, and things like that. Talk about bringing her character into the fold. Well, she is a character like like many of the characters on our show who who has a past uh, that is not uh, maybe what we would have thought from the outset. Um, Maybe she's not quite pure as the driven snow. And um, we start to become uh, aware of that in this episode, and she feels compelled to escape because somebody knows about her past. And um, we love the idea of her kind of having this this star-crossed relationship with Marshall in town, two people who could not be from more different places. Obviously, she gets taken back to the camp at the end of the episode, and and what we will we, we are kind of putting down roots for a relationship between them where um, it's it's going to be it's going to be difficult for them to uh, to come together. And the, and the notion of the locket was a fun idea that was pitched early on in the writers' room, and uh, that we uh, debated for weeks and, uh, and and came to embrace because it, it involves. These ideas of you know fate and determinism. It's someone gives her a locket and says you should find this guy because you're going to a time, um, and we know he's a good person. And if somebody from the future would come back to you and tell you that you were a good person, and obviously when we meet Marshall, we realize he's not. He's sort of this ne'er do well kid who's getting into fights all the time. And 
you know, he had sort of a tragic past that we'll explore a little bit later. Um, a mysterious accident 10 yeah. years ago. And so it's the sort of, you know, it's sort of the chicken and the egg theory. It's like, did he become a good person because she came back and talked to him? <laughs> or was he never set on that path? So it gets us, you know, a little bit down that rabbit hole, which is why we had so many discussions about, you know, how to treat this, this locket and, uh, and these star-crossed lovers. Natalie Martinez, she plays Reese, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, how much training did she have going into this when it comes to the fighting? Cause I mean, she's the, the, the fight scenes really ramp up here uh, and she's great at that. So was there a lot of training on her end for that or no? I, I honestly don't. I mean, obviously there was a lot of practicing those specific stunts that she did in the episode, but she had had training prior to our show. I know, I know. I mean, one of the reasons we always liked the idea of her in the role is because she had, she had done the show. I may have mentioned this on the last podcast. She had, she had done the show called kingdom which was really cool. I loved it. I saw like every episode and it was about MMA fighters. Um, and so she was, she was very convincing in that she clearly had training before and she loves that stuff. It's her favorite thing. She'll tell you yeah. like she loves action. She loves to fight. She wants to do her own stunts at every turn. Like, um, so she, she's great. So she was in great shape coming to the show. And then she got together with Danny Virtue, our stunt coordinator, who's a, um, he's like a legend up in Canada. You know, he's, he's been doing stunts for years. He did Planet of the Apes with Steve Zahn. And um, um, I think it's partly because of their relationship that we were able to work with Danny. And so Danny, you know, trained her too. And they worked out together and, and worked on the choreography. And, and yeah, Natalie was, you know, terrific at it. At it. And a lot of the, the stunts that you see her do are, you know, are we've had, we did have stunt um, women, you know, taking her place. But well, she did a lot of takes herself and a lot of them we used. Now, we have a new character uh, that we're introduced to this episode, and Andrew, so this is where I want to bring you in, because we're talking about Dr. Sophie, Dr. Sophie Scar. I like alliteration, so. Okay. Dr. Sophie Scar. We get her big, we get to see her big scar. Heart surgery scar. Something's coming up there. Um, So, but talk about uh, bringing her in, what she allows you to do, and how she allows you guys to get more into the science of this show. Yeah, well, so she comes in to... um, Lindauer wants her to come in and figure out if there are other carriers of Mantle's disease because he wants to stop that in its track and tracks. And in the meantime, she she is uh, treating Leia. So through Leia, she is able to find out about, uh, you know, she suspects that, you know, she can tell from looking at Leia's blood work that she may have experienced these symptoms before and been treated for them. And through that, she finds out about Leia's mom. And it's a big mystery to Sophie as to who her mom could have been to supply a treatment for this unknown disease, and then by the end of the episode, we see that Rebecca's about to tell her about Apex, which is going to open, really open up Sophie's journey in a way, because as a scientist, and and more personally, as someone who has that scar on her chest, who has had open heart surgery before, who does have like a congenital heart issue uh, that's going to uh, limit her own lifespan, she's going to be really personally curious to find out about this um, potential cure for disease who's walking around out there in the form of, of Reese and she's going to kind of go on a quest. And Andrew, I, I this was news to me and you could talk about this maybe. I didn't know that you could tell from somebody's blood work that they have been uh, treated before for a certain disease. Uh, if, if from blood work you can pick out a number of different molecules that, that can essentially show whether you've mounted immune response to a virus before. 
Um, uh, we generate antibodies and other molecules as defense mechanisms, and we've learned how to scan for those for those antibodies. So we can actually see if someone has has been uh, has had a vaccine or has been or has mounted an immune response to a challenge in the past. We wanted to kind of talk to to Andrew today a little bit about uh, again. It's just we're trying to on this podcast, hit on things that Jay and I found personally fascinating in terms of the science. And so we, 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 one of the things is just simply learning about certain diseases, which now in the present, I think most people think are going to be with the human race for a long time to come, but will in fact uh, be eradicated most likely. We've, we've already conquered a number of diseases just through things like vaccines and antibiotics. And now we're, we're getting closer and closer to, to being able to make cancer, um, no worse than an infection. Like that's, that's the near future work, but given the, the ability to, you know, start to reprogram our bodies, our cells, um, uh, and just have this, this greater control over biology in general, because we understand the molecular mechanisms, we could conceivably get rid of almost every disease moving forward. Um, because, because if it's, if it's infectious, we can fight it. If it's something like a cancer, we can detect it so early, it never causes disease and specifically eradicate it. If it's a more complex disease like Alzheimer's, we can, we can understand the genetics of it and correct the genetics even before we're born uh, or, or blunt the processes that produce that type of, uh, uh, of decline. Um, so, so it's not inconceivable that 100 years out, we don't die from anything except from perhaps wearing out. Um, which is why there's such a focus today on kind of understanding the biology of just aging. Well, um, that, okay, so that's another obviously question I think people would be interested in lifespan. Uh, like, how long do you think we can go? There is no theoretical limit to life. Like, remember, we are, there is an unbroken chain of life going back to the first life that, that leads to us. It is, it's not like it stops and then gets rebooted somewhere further down the road. Life is a continuous chain, always evolving. Even now, I could take cells from your blood, put it into a dish, and, and basically culture those cells for a thousand years after you're dead. <laughs> You've probably heard of the HeLa cell, which was, you know, which is a famous story, but cells that were, were taken from uh, a cancer patient and and still persist oh, in their wasn't that the, research tools today. That was the they made that that was the Oprah Winfrey movie, right? Didn't yes, they, they exactly. Did, right. Yeah. The HBO movie so, about the Yeah. Um, so 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 Well really I guess there's, there's, that's like de de extinction, right? We're gonna be able to take genetic well, material from prehistoric birds and have pets. For the future. Well, it's harder <laughs> to go back to prehistoric animals and reboot them, but there's already a serious effort by by a group called Revive and Restore, and and working with Dr. George Church to to re de extinct the woolly mammoth and the right. pasture pigeon. But but if we have relatively intact genetic material of any organism, nothing has to go extinct anymore, and and that really does apply to people as well. You could theoretically clone a person from a sample of, uh, uh, of their cells that's in a freezer. Um, you know, granted, you can't clone a mind 
and have all the memories, etc. But but there's no reason even for us to go extinct anymore as individuals, given the technologies we currently have. Well, but that's that's one side of it. But the other side, I think my original question is just like the body that that you are born with. Like, what do you think the longest that body can go? That one is a little trickier, and that's because uh, our bodies, um, we don't understand all the mechanisms of aging. And, of course, evolution has never, um, hasn't been guiding the, 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 uh, our, our cells to persist forever. Um, but that being said, uh, we, we might get very good at, at being able to blunt the aging forces. So uh, we've already been able to achieve this with mice. There's work that is starting in dogs to not only prevent the aging of animals, but even rewind them. So take an older animal and make them younger, um, which uh, so there's some really fascinating work that's starting to happen in longevity. But there's no absolute fixed limit to our lives. So if we can learn to manipulate our bodies, either our genetic material before we're born, uh, have better treatments as we live, it's it's theoretic. It's not impossible to live potentially thousands of years. I think there's a common conception out there among a lot of people that if you live long enough, you're going to get cancer, or if you live long enough, you're going to get Alzheimer's or some kind of disease. Is that actually factually correct? And can we reverse that as well? So uh, you can think of your cells as as little computers, little factories. And, and of course, anyone that's got a computer has probably experienced the blue screen of death or some sort of disc corruption, you know, whether it's even like your phone. So often you sometimes you just have to go and reboot it and restart it. Life doesn't have that opportunity to restart. So, yes, the longer you live, the more corruption you're, you're essentially going to have in your cells. And and if the corruption is in just the right way, you get a cancer. Um but but there's no reason why we couldn't just selectively destroy the cells that aren't working properly and have them repopulated with a fresh new cell. We're going to get really good at doing some of these types of manipulations in the future. Um, and and that opens up the possibility that we we prevent these problems or correct these problems in real time, just as we as just part of our our daily lives. And talking about the science, like it's the social side of some of these things or the socioeconomic side, or the sociopolitical side, which is always so interesting. Like, so in this case, if we do achieve a greater longevity, if we are able to cure so many diseases and live much longer, like, I I think a lot of people would say, well, at what point is that going to create like a population epidemic? Like if you have people living too long, then population density becomes an issue. Do you see that as a potential issue? I I don't really, because we're getting so much better at managing the entire uh, environment that we live in. Um, so yeah, we've been kind of abusing it the last few hundred years, but that it looks like we're turning the corner on that in this century. And, and so we have no shortage of energy as long as we have a sun. There's no shortage of the amount of food we can grow in things like vertical farms or underground vertical farms. Um, uh, we'll learn how to better manage and, and, and protect the natural world around us. But we'll also create a supernatural world with the genetic engineering tools. So we shouldn't have any problems meeting the biological needs of humanity if we just get our act together. Um, and I see that as, as coming. I'm, I'm an optimist, but, but I know that we've, we've, we've always risen to the challenge, so to speak. But there's no shortage of room on this planet. 
yeah, the skin of the of the planet is getting a little crowded, but it goes really deep. And it's a big hmm. universe that, you know, the planet's in. You know, there's lots of other planets to go to. Ooh, so. that's, that's a whole other episode right there. <laughs> that's awesome. But what, what will that do to housing prices in Southern California? Because they're already sky high. There's not enough room. So we're going to have to go underground, you're saying, to, to house people? You know, I've, I've, you're, you can already see this in London. Some of the big mansions, if you go underground, they actually have multiple stories underground because there's no room on the surface to, to expand their mansions. And so the, you, um, I see going underground as, as being the thing that keeps rents lower in San Francisco and New York moving forward. <laughs> wow. Well, let's hope the oceans don't rise. I feel I feel like this has been this has been like the kind of hopeful optimistic episode whereas last episode like this is about curing disease and, and the episode 2 podcast was about like the easy development of bioweapons that could just target you in your sleep. Is, is curing cancer though is that the moonshot is that the one that everybody's focused on and everybody wants to to do? Curing cancer is the easy job because you're not trying to fix a complicated machine, the cell. You're just trying to selectively kill certain cells. So it, it's really a, a relatively easy job. And, and the day, you know, we eradicated infectious disease with viruses. We can treat most microbial infections. They just don't kill us anymore. A hundred years ago, that was the big killer. And, and, and I believe that cancer will just become another antibiotic problem. Just take this pill. It never becomes a serious infection. You don't die. So cancer is a low-hanging fruit. It's going to be things like, like uh, Alzheimer's and schizophrenia and other more complex diseases that, will, that, will, you know, that we really have to start putting and turning our attention to well, can you speak into. can you speak a little bit on your progress there because when last we spoke we talked about you were working with uh, almost like a clinical trial with dogs and yeah. treating a dog with bone cancer and your your goal was to treat you know tens and hundreds of dogs before we move on to humans to, to sort of illustrate how it's safe and effective I have an amazing partner, uh, Dr. Bruce Smith at Auburn University in Alabama, that is just a, a, a genius and ran uh, a clinical trial with, with viruses that hunt down cancer cells in dogs. I basically provided him with, with enhanced technology so that he can make those viruses individualized to the dog. We're building a machine. The, my company, Humane Genomics, is essentially building a machine. You input information about the cell you want to kill. It will make you a virus to kill that cell. And we're focusing on dogs because the clinical trials and being able to do this type of development work um, and, and working with dogs with, who are family members today and we want to be able to treat and we, we just don't have good treatments for them. It's just the perfect combination. So we're starting with dogs, but the machine can essentially you know be tuned to human cancers as well. That's the whole goal of what we're trying to do. Um, but I just don't, it, it, that scales to be you know for everyone. Uh, so, so I love the idea of just really of being able to make custom therapeutics for every cancer, every person, um, you know, and I think that's going to come faster than most people realize. The first personalized treatments were approved by the FDA last year. For humans? For humans. So yeah. with this customization, you're effectively eliminating the need for clinical trials, right? Because it's well, an individualized it. treatment. The treatment for my cancer cannot be used for Dan's, right? It's just for me. And so... There's no need. So you do a clinical trial, but you do a clinical trial of one person, which is really different than the way we do it today, where if you screw up, you could potentially hurt millions of people, which is why you have to be so cautious. But when you start doing clinical trials of one, it changes the entire drug development regulatory process, and you can just accelerate like crazy. This is, I think, the biggest advancement in, in drug development in 100 years. 
Well, now my conspiracy kind of brain starts to fire because if you're able to do this, there's so much billions of dollars in the treatment of cancer. Do you are you are you are you getting any resistance to this? Do you do you do you have any fears about maybe putting large pharmaceutical companies out of business? <laughs> now, people used to say, Andrew, aren't you worried about pharmaceutical company ninjas and, and <laughs> you know taking you? And and the answer is no. The 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 thing is, the pharmaceutical companies today do help people. It's just a bad business model. It, it, it doesn't really scale to, to help everyone in the world. So the blockbuster model is dying. The Netflix model of being able to make drugs on demand is starting to appear. Um, you know, they'll coexist for a while. Who wins in the end? <laughs> I feel like that's a hopeful note to yeah. end on. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, definitely a fascinating and optimistic this week. Yeah. Look at the science behind the crossing. Uh, and everything else. So we want to thank you guys, uh, Jay and thank Dan. You. Andrew, thanks. again, thanks for uh, making us a little happier this week. And a little smarter. Thanks, and a, Andrew. And a little smarter. And we want you to be a part of this. So send us your questions on Twitter using the hashtag TheCrossingPodcast. That's hashtag TheCrossingPodcast. I'm your host, ABC Radio's Jason Nathanson, and we'll cross paths next week.